We came to Kyoto to find new ways to bridge our differences. In doing so, however, we must not waver in our resolve. Australia will more than play its part to address climate change, but we'll do it in a practical and balanced way, in full knowledge of the economic consequences for our nation. Our efforts to protect biodiversity itself will exceed, will exceed the requirements of the treaty. Hi, and welcome back to Barely Getting By, the long 1990s. So the flip side of having an expert in environmental politics to take us on a tour of the environment in the 1990s is that occasionally we do have to indulge some of her, I guess, some of her interests. So as Emma did for me previously in our episode about the band Pulp, so I'm going to extend the um, extend a hand to her favorite vice president, her favorite president who never was, Al Gore, who was America's most famous environmentalist who came to global prominence in the 1990s. But there is legitimate academic and research justification for talking about Al Gore because he was absolutely an important and critical figure in the environmental movement. So, Emma, can you tell us a bit about Al Gore and his background? With pleasure. Thank you for indulging me, Chloe, to talk about my favourite almost president. Um, So you're right that Al Gore is, I think, really significant to particularly... um, American environmentalism, but I think, you know, that because we're talking about the 1990s in the US, that also means global environmentalism. So as I um, I think I mentioned in a, in a previous episode of this series, of course, Al Gore is um, Bill Clinton's vice president in the 1990s. He's a Harvard graduate, so he's an um, inhabitant of the swamp, I guess. Um, he spent time in Vietnam during the war there as an army journalist, and he was first elected to Congress when he was only 28 years old in 1976. Um, and he very quickly kind of dedicated himself to the issues of health, environment, and nuclear disarmament at the time. Um, so he very he he made a name for himself, I suppose, in those issue areas. And then he he guess he came to further national prominence in 1988 when he won, he ran for the Democratic nomination for president and he lost to Michael Dukakis, um, which I have to say did not go all that well for the Democrats in, in 88. Um, and he, I guess like most, pretty much all, I, w- I would say, failed presidential candidates. He went on to, to write a book, um, as they do, but his was called Earth in the Balance, and it was published in 1992. And it was actually the first book by a sitting senator. You know, all basically all of whom have have written book, not just books, not just the failed presidential candidates. Um, it was the first one to get onto the New York Times bestseller list since JFK wrote Profiles in Courage several decades before. So he, so he's he's pretty famous. Um, incidentally, he also he went to Antarctica in, in 1989 when he was a senator. Um, so, so there's my kind of research connection, which I was very ha- happy to discover. Um, he, he met with Bob Hawke at the time, um, and he, he's visited Australia quite a few times, actually, um, recently, too, to, to have weird press conferences with Clive Palmer. I'm not sure if you remember that, but we, I think we, were not, we won't talk about that. We're focused on the 1990s. Um, so he accepted the, the nomination for vice president in 92, um, 
because, to kind of go back to our early discussion, because he had actually gone to the Rio Earth Summit, the UN Summit, and had been so disappointed with what the US had done there that he decided as vice president, you know, that's how he could make a difference to kind of atone for what the US had done. But long after the agreements arrived at in Rio are put in place, parliamentarians will be faced with the challenge of making the difficult decisions on how to implement this new way of thinking and the new shared conviction that we human beings must heal the relationship between our civilization and the ecological system of the earth. But of course, as we know, you know, much, much to Al Gore's disappointment, he wasn't really able to atone for the US, the US's actions in Rio in 1992. Um, After his and Clinton's election, they were mostly constrained by acting on the environment, in particular by a hostile Congress and a hostile Senate that, as we know, kind of voted against the Kyoto Protocol um, later in the decade. And then, of course, you know, we, we were robbed of a, of a true environmental president when the election was essentially stolen from him in, in the year 2000 at the end of the decade. Yes, yeah, so without going into the details of that notorious election in 2000, which would probably be a bit of a digression from the topic at hand, all I will say is that I, I understand that Emma has stored somewhere on her hard drive several copies of her Al Gore, Al Gore wins the presidency fan fiction. Um but that's a massive digression and probably a huge embarrassment. Maybe another you, season of uh, the podcast, Chloe. I might save it up. <laughs> Al Gore was my president. Um, sounds a little bit, a bit scandalous. So, but Al Gore, he, but he, after he lost that election in 2000, he did keep at it. He kept pressing the case for more action on climate. Yeah, he he absolutely did. So so many people might remember that um, about six years later, I think it was two thousand and six, he released the film, An Inconvenient Truth, um, which which kind of swept across the globe, I think, and and shot him to to start him again as an environmental communicator, an effective environmental communicator and campaigner, and he kind of became, I think, the face of at least American environmental activism in the two thousands. The assumption is something like this. The earth is so big, we can't possibly have any lasting harmful impact on the earth's environment. And maybe that was true at one time, but it's not anymore. And one of the reasons it's not true anymore is that the most vulnerable part of the earth's ecological system is the atmosphere. And, he, and he's still at it. You know, as I said, he came, he came to Australia recently and he's still um, constantly campaigning, uh, training up activists is one of his big focus uh, focuses. But he's also still um, kind of doing speaking tours, I guess, of, of the United States and, and talking to his friends in particular about climate change. So I was, this is kind of obnoxious of me, but I was lucky enough, I suppose, to, to actually see him speak at, at Yale University when I was there a couple of years ago, interviewed by John Kerry, who is an, another failed presidential candidate. So I had a real moment, Chloe, when I was sitting there, like trying to imagine if we'd had first President Al Gore and then President John Kerry and the, the kind of world that we might have lived in. So I was pretty, like, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but I was pretty awestruck. Like I was sitting about two rows away from them, kind of looking right at them. You know, I can see the details of Al Gore's cowboy boots under his um, p- 
pretty, pretty, pretty standard boring suit. Um, that's about as exciting as Al Gore gets to, to wear some kind of racy cowboy boots. Anyway, but, you know, I also, sitting there watching them being kind of awestruck, um, I also found myself at the time getting getting pretty angry, which I actually spent a lot of my time at Yale doing, um, being angry. And that's, that's because I was really struck at the time, you know, knowing so much about environmentalism in the 1990s and, and Gore's role in it, it really struck me, you know, several decades later, listening to these two failed presidential candidates, that actually their politics have not changed since 1992. Look, I, I do have a comment there about how, you know, maybe sitting in a dark lecture theatre at Yale watching Al Gore speak is probably about as cool as you've ever got. <laughs> but tell me more about that. So his politics haven't changed since 1992. What, what, how would you describe those politics? Well, I guess what I would say is that that Gore is he's a liberal. He's an American liberal, which I think we've been hearing a lot about as is kind of John Kerry and and sitting there in that little lecture theater, you know, at the heart of the liberal elite bubble in in the US. You know, they're still talking about climate change as a kind of technical problem. Like this is, you know, acting on climate change using renewable energy instead of fossil fuels, it's just the rational thing to do. You know, now renewables are cheaper. So so Gore has he has a number of variations on this story, but about um, Republicans, deep red Republican governors or mayors or whatever in deep red states, you know, suddenly sitting down and doing the maths and realizing that renewable energy is so much cheaper than fossil fuels. And so making the decision to go full renewables and and everybody's so happy with it. And we have this kind of wonderful, rational um, people that are are bipartisan and are not being bogged down in in politics. Um, And, you know, while those stories are, of course, true, like that is happening in, in isolation where people are doing that, the idea that you can just sub out fossil fuels for renewable energy, you can kind of just pull one out and slot one in underneath and not actually change any of the big structures of our society or our economy is that is kind of liberal environmentalism, I guess, in a nutshell. You know, we can make these changes, but we don't actually have to change the way we do things more generally. We we have a system that works. We just need to kind of tweak it and, and change it a little bit. Um, and, you know, Gore continues to speak like this. You know, he, him and his mate John Kerry continue to kind of nod sagely and say, you know, oh, if only everybody was as rational as us despite the fact that that kind of approach to politics quite clearly doesn't work. And I think that's why I was so enraged because I'm sitting there thinking like, this has been several decades of failure, this continued failure to act and things keep getting worse. You know, Al Gore, you keep telling us how bad things are getting for the environment and yet you're not changing your politics. I suppose, I suppose what you're describing is kind of a, a politics from the end of history that is still hanging on in a time, and I think this was this would have been about 2017, right, that you saw them speak. Yeah, so hanging on at a time when history is suddenly resurgent, which is something that we do keep coming back to on this podcast. And I think there are two sides to what you've identified there. There's the there's the failure to reckon with the the really the challenge of our political and economic systems that can't support the radical and necessary action that we need on climate change. But also 
the way that they the way that they carry out that struggle and that fight. I mean, we spoke in the last instalment of this episode about how Gore he is he is a master negotiator and a very committed negotiator, and he was able to really effectively work, especially in the Kyoto, the original Kyoto negotiations and those discussions in Japan. But that's very that's a very different set of skills and abilities to what we're seeing now in you know at the at the real forefront of the climate fight which is this increasing radicalism an increasing emphasis on nonviolent direct action an increasing focus on action outside of the so-called and I'm putting this in air quotes legitimate institutions of democracy so so I think do you think that there's this sort of gore, the gore's attitude that he's still carrying on is that something that's kind of typical of the 1990s I think it. I think it is. I, th- I think you're right. There's this kind of faith in institutions, and there's a faith in individuals as rational actors to to kind of look at it, assess, a, a situation, assess it, and make the the kind of technocratic decision. You know, the right, the the I guess the most rational decision, and and that continues. And I think kind of what you were getting at is is underlying that there's this kind of I guess faith in the system which for particularly for american liberals means that you know in this system that we have created everybody can kind of come together to make a mutually acceptable compromise you know everybody is acting in good faith we have you know rational people that if we just explain things properly if we just put the words in the right order which i know i've said before they'll come around and we'll we'll come to a kind of cost benefit a solution and everything will be fine. We'll keep, we'll keep kind of marching forward to progress. And I think that's what's particularly important when we're talking about that in the 1990s, um, which I think has, has become more extreme, I guess, this problem with assuming people are acting in good faith, is that it allows you to think that everybody because everybody is acting in good faith and everybody can can be convinced to be rational, the real destroyers of the environment are kind of comical baddies. Like they're not, um, they're not you and me. They're not the structures that we're talking about. They're these outliers who are kind of like comic book villains who are evil. And, you know, some of those, I guess, are the producers of fossil fuels, but most of those people are still rational and we can convince them to, to change things. And I guess I kind of see it in some of our current debates in, in a related but different issue about racism. And it's that idea that a lot of uh, white people hold, I suppose, which, which is the, this insistence that I'm not racist. I'm a, I'm a good person. I can't possibly be racist because racists are baddies. Like racists are people who are out there using words they're not allowed to use, committing hate crimes. That's not me. I'm not a literal Nazi, so I'm not responsible for any of this. Um, and, and that, I think, is what's playing out in Gore's politics, in the politics of, of the 1990s. I think that's I think that's really interesting in two respects. Firstly, you mentioned this idea of a cost-benefit analysis in climate politics, and that's that is very much that's associated with a certain kind of rationality and one that I think was was fit for purpose when climate change wasn't as it is now rightly regarded when it wasn't regarded as an existential issue for the planet and also also an issue of of radical uncertainty. I don't think you can. I don't think you can make a cost-benefit calculation based on, you know, trade-offs between, say, environmental and economic and political concerns in a period where 
the outcomes are so enormous, the potential outcomes are so enormous and there is still so much uncertainty. Um, and that's something I want to come back to in a minute when we talk about some alternative voices to Gores in the 1990s. The other thing I'm thinking about when you're talking about these, this idea of their bad, their being baddies, is it is, it is very 90s in the sense that I think the the it's the thing that environmentalism and Al Gore's environmentalism and American liberalism more generally was and continues to be very avoidant of that they refuse to engage with this is the question of whether whether and this is the real pointy end of the debate whether. The interests of capital can ever be reconciled to the interests of the environment and the interests of life on this planet. Yeah, I think that is that is absolutely the question. And I think in the 1990s there is consensus in I, I suppose you know for want of a better phrase the halls of power that that people like Gore occupy that those interests can be reconciled. You can absolutely do a kind of cost cost benefit analysis and you know in the in the kind of I guess more simplistic example of something like um, fisheries or, or over exploitation and I can I can link to some really cool work about this. You know it, it is still possible to keep exploiting this resource. And, and using it for the benefit of, of humankind, we just have to do it rationally. We kind of all have to come together and, and do a cost-benefit analysis and, and everybody can still win. We can all be satisfied and, and continue to exploit different resources as long as we do it carefully and properly. And I think in the 1990s that has traction exactly as you say, Chloe, because climate change is not... I mean, I mean, it's still really pressing. Of course, people are, are extremely concerned by it and the science is it's, it's kind of the same. You know, the trajectories are the same, albeit there's, there's a lot more distance, I suppose. So there's this idea that we can kind of keep tweaking, we can keep talking and, and we'll come to a kind of, I guess, almost an, an equilibrium, you know, that, that perfect kind of scientific, technocratic stability. Uh, we can create stability in the system. Um that I think, of course, you know, from the perspective of today, we can see how flawed that is, and also that assumption that that capital and environment can coexist. And and also to bring that back to what you're talking about in the in the last instalment of this episode, there's also a planetary logic at play. You know, so in the early 1990s, everyone is looking at the Earth in awe and is being kind of kind of awed by how small we truly are but also the earth is regarded as a manageable ecosystem that be- belongs to us but the big lesson of the anthropocene that we are learning to co- to our cost and very painfully now is that we have very little control or we have actually given up what little control we had over those planetary systems because we haven't we never acted early enough and I think that that's you know you you mentioned that you're going to link to some research and then I think I think it's probably a moment to, a good moment to give a shout out to a brilliant colleague of ours at RMIT, Lauren Rickards, who writes beautifully and very convincingly on a lot of these issues. So we'll shout out to Lauren and we'll certainly link to some of her work. Emma, I want to hear a bit more about the alternatives because of course radical voices they never truly go away. They might be suppressed, they might be marginalised, but they're still there. And one of the things I've really noticed is that certain people are finally getting the attention, long-deserved attention um, in the current debates, but they are doing, that's kind of the culmination of an effort that was going on even in the 1990s. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to point that out because um, organisations, big environmental like organisations like Greenpeace are having these internal arguments. You know, there are, there are elements in Greenpeace who are really keen to try and work with, with the system that we have to assume people are working in good faith, to see, you know, someone like Al Gore in the White House and think like we're making progress. But also 
even in those organizations, there are more, I guess, even, you know, in the sense of Greenpeace, kind of old school environmentalists who are much more radical, who are much more insistent on doing things like, you know, just, just flat out saying you cannot exploit this resource anymore. You know, some things should just be off limits to humans and we have to totally rethink the way that we live on our planet. And I think it's also worth saying that, that Greenpeace is, at the time at Greenpeace and a lot of other organizations are kind of struggling again with this question of industrialized versus industri- non-industrialized countries and the kind of environmental racism that comes with that. So, so grappling with the fact that basically since its genesis in the, in the 1960s, the, the modern Western environmental movement is predominantly white and predominantly middle class. And you see that it play out in the 1990s with things like, you know, the movement for Earth Day, which again is is pretty white and pretty middle class. And that's where this kind of liberal environmental politics comes from. You know, this idea that, that we're okay, the system is good because we're pretty comfortable. We just have to kind of change the way that we live a little bit. And there are people pointing this out at the time. There are lots of people pointing this out. And, and you know, somebody that people people might recognise is um, Bill McKibben, who's, who's a really prominent and, and radical environmentalist. Um, he, he wrote, he, he came to, to prominence in 1989 when he wrote The End of Nature. And that, that is a kind of radical call to action for climate change. And, he, and he's largely credited, I think, with, with giving climate change the prominence, at least in those kind of circles that I'm talking about, in in the early 1990s. So there are these voices. Certainly, people are talking about these issues. They're they're doing systemic critiques. They're talking about environmental racism, but in the 1990s, they just aren't the loudest voices. You know, they're not. They're a long way from power. They're not anywhere near the White House in the United States. They're not anywhere near. I think you know Tony Blair's government in the UK. That they've largely been pushed out by the kind of technocratic, third way New Democrat types. So they're there, but I guess you know, unfortunately for us, if we if we look at our current predicament, they're just not having the influence and the cut through that that they're after. And one thing that we want to explore in the next instalment is how that liberal environmentalism was reinforced in popular culture. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen. 